distressing and disorientating confusion that doubt brings, John's writing to give joy and certainty. And you see that throughout the letter as well. So you could look, for example, uh, in chapter 2, where you've got this little poetic structure that's probably marked out in your Bible. He's writing to you, dear children, to you, fathers, to you, young men, because, uh, because you have been forgiven, because you have known him, because you have overcome. He's writing to reassure and to strengthen and to help and to support these believers. And throughout the letter, as, as we said already, and I hope you saw some of that as we read through, John keeps presenting these contrasts. These contrasts, either or. You're either, you're either in the truth or you're in a lie. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. You've either been brought into life or you're staying in death. You're either in Christ or you're out of him. You either love or you hate. You've either been born again or you're still dead. And John doesn't leave any middle ground. There's no sort of wallowing in the middle. There's no kind of, oh well, I've had a little bit of Jesus but I'm still tempted by other things over here and I'm not really sure where I stand. John says, you're either in or you're out. I'm giving you certainty on where you are. I'm not leaving a grey area in the middle for you to wander around in. Here are the tests. Are you in or are you out? Are you for Christ or are you against him? Have you accepted him or do you continue to reject him? And so John's letter gives to those who might be facing doubt, to those who might be having their faith challenged, to those who might be wondering what is the content of their Christian faith, John writes to give assurance and certainty. And it's these tests that form the main bulk of the, of the body of the letter. Now, I'd like to use a, an illustration to, to show how I mentioned the difference between Paul's writing, which perhaps we're more used to discussing and studying, and the way John writes. So let's say Paul's writing is like a chain. And he makes his his first argument, which is the first link in the chain. And then onto that first argument, he adds another piece of information or another doctrine. And then onto that, he, he adds another piece of application to your life. And then onto that, he adds another uh, linked doctrine or truth that, that, that stems from that. And and in this way, Paul seems to build up a chain of arguments. And you can pick any one of those arguments and you can study it and you can look at it and you can see how it applies and what it teaches us. Or you can look at the chain as a whole and you can see how all these arguments sling together. And the strength of the chain as a whole depends on the strength of any one of the individual arguments. Now, with John, he writes differently. Instead of picturing a chain with linked arguments all in, all in series, what I want you to think of is these tests acting like strands of a rope. And as you look at this rope from one side, you see first strand A. But then as that strand weaves inside the rope and, and round the back, then a bit further below it, you see strand B. Uh, but then after a while, strand B sort of weaves back into the rope and out round the back. And th- then you can see strand C. And so on. And as you look down the rope, at different points down the rope, you're seeing different strands. But each of these strands run all the way down the rope. And the strength of the rope is seen not by analysing each individual test or argument, but the strength of the rope is taken only when all the strands weave together and each one supports the next and they're all taken as a whole. 
And so I want to group these tests that John makes, and I've grouped them into three strands, as it were. The strand, which is a test about what you believe. The strand, which is a test about how you live, or more specifically, how you live with relation to sin and righteousness. And the third strand, which is a test about how do you love. How do you love your brothers and sisters in the church? And these strands, we can't separate them out and, 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 uh, and view them as a, as a singularity. Because they're part of John's letter and the way John's writing, they're intended to be interwoven, one supporting the other. And the strength of the whole depends on the strength of these interwoven strands working together. And so we can't just take the test of belief, for example, and focus on that one alone. We've got to view the test of belief in light of the way it interacts with the test of living and the way that that interacts with the test of loving. Okay. So we're going to look at each of these three tests in turn and we're going to start with the test of belief. But not because that's the first link in the chain or anything like that, not because it's the most important, not because it's the one that John spends most time on, perhaps though just logically because what we believe affects what we do. And so logically we could start by considering what we believe. And also, actually it does, it does crop up fairly early in the letter, so it seems like a good place to start as we review 1 John as a whole. So first then, this test of belief. If you're a real Christian, there will be a test of what you believe. And in 1 John chapter 1 verses 5 to 9, at uh, the end of this first chapter, John seems to be dealing with some of those outside influences that might attack the Christian faith. Now, he's probably referring to some sort of false teaching of some kind here. He's saying, look, consider those who claim that such a thing. He's saying those who claim that they, are, that they have fellowship with God and yet do other things. Those who claim that they have no sin and yet. Those who claim that they have never sinned and yet. And so although John doesn't specifically name these false teachers, it seems, reading between the lines, that he's dealing with probably a false teaching that was infiltrating the church. And he says, look, these people, they're they're claiming one thing, but their lives demonstrate that they either don't really believe it, or it demonstrates that their teaching is erroneous, or it demonstrates that they're deceiving themselves. Look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Look at verse 10. It says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, we make God out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. These people seem to be claiming that for them, sin wasn't really an issue. To be a Christian, you don't really have to deal with the, the problem of sin because In actual fact, they would say, sin's not really an issue anyway. Sin's sort of old hat. It's too low for us. We're not really concerned with sin. We're above all that now. Unfortunately, it doesn't take much imagination for us to wonder how exactly that teaching might have sounded. Because today, even today, you might hear similar teaching along the lines of, well, you do what's right for you in your life. Don't worry about what other people say. Don't worry about some old ancient rules that aren't really relevant anymore. 
you might hear people saying, look, it's not so much a decision about deciding between right and wrong as if there's only one path you can take. No, no, no. It's all about just what's right for you. And maybe what's right for you might be different in another culture or another time or another place. And no, 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 we don't deny the Bible. But we're just updating things. We're just approaching things in with a modern mindset. And in such a way, people can easily disregard the truth of sin. Other people might say, yeah, 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 we, we know the Bible calls certain things sinful. But don't you realise how long ago the Bible was written? And it just seems to reflect the culture that it was written in. And today we've got to rewrite things to reflect the culture that we live in. Or even the opposite can be true. Where a church might teach that sin has a particular focus in one area of life. Perhaps just sexual uh, immorality. And there's such an intense focus on this is what sin is that it leads the congregation, it leads the followers to believe that, okay, so if you've not got those sort of sins, then we're not sinful. And really, the only people who are sinful, the only people who do need saving, are those people who who have those issues with sin. And it can lead people to develop a type of Christianity that doesn't deal properly with the reality of sin in their own lives. And John says to us then, if you develop this sort of thinking, this sort of theology, if you like, you deceive yourselves. You're not facing up to the plain truths of the matter that can be seen. Not, not, you don't have to go diving in the book to find them. They can be seen in the reality of your life. If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourselves. And what's more, you make God's word out to be a lie. You're wiping away... Uh, significant portions of God's word. And so the first test of belief, as it were, the first part of this test of belief that John presents is that you need to believe that you are a sinner. The first part of Christian belief is to believe that you are a sinner, to realise your need. The first part of the good news, as it were, is the bad news. You need a saviour. And you need saving from a specific issue, which is sin. Do you believe that? John presents that as the test of what is a true believer. And so what is the answer then of this issue of sin? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, John moves swiftly on and he says, Look, I'm writing this so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus Christ the righteous one. The answer to the problem of sin is Jesus Christ. He is our defence. Not our denial, notice. He is our defence. He's come to deal with the problem of sin, not just to brush it under the carpet, not pretend like it's not really there, not pretend like it doesn't truly affect us, but to come to deal with it, to stand in our defence. Now, in John's letter as a whole, there's actually very little about how then Jesus Christ works to bring forgiveness for our sins. There's very little about um, the atonement. Perhaps two verses, really. There's, there's, there's no mention of justification. Uh, there's no mention, really, of Christ's death. It talks about him laying down his life, but not explicitly his death, in that sense. But there's no doubt in what John is referring to here. He's saying this forgiveness that is offered for sin, 
The solution for sin comes through Jesus Christ alone. And so this test of what you believe is, as well as accepting your own sinfulness, is what do you make of Jesus? How is he working for you? What role does he have in your life? He picks this up later on in the letter. So after introducing Jesus in the first verse of chapter 2, then his his main section about this belief on Jesus comes towards the end of chapter 2. This section about the Antichrists, verse 18 to 27. Um, Now, try not to get too hung up at this point about who the Antichrist is or, or what's going on here. The word Antichrist is a word that it's only used by John and really it's only used in this letter. So if you want to know who the Antichrist is and what's going on, then read these verses. And the, the crux of the matter about this Antichrist is given in verse 22. Uh, it's, it's about his name uh, and it's about the way this Antichrist works. Verse 22, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies that Jesus is the Christ. And in so doing, he denies the Father and the Son. Interesting, this Antichrist doesn't necessarily deny the existence of Jesus, doesn't necessarily deny the miraculous signs that Jesus did, doesn't necessarily deny the teachings of Jesus, doesn't necessarily deny his good works, This Antichrist denies that Jesus is the Christ. This Antichrist denies that Jesus is the promised saviour, sent to deal with the issue of sin, promised right from the very first pages of the Bible, when sin entered the world. The promised one who would come and crush Satan's head. The promised one come to deal with our problem. The Antichrist is the one who denies that this is who Jesus is. And John picks up this uh, theme again later in chapter 5 and he expands further. So chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. And this time he's explaining, look, understand that Jesus is the Christ who is the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so you get this testimony, this belief that must be accepted uh, for a person to be a Christian. Chapter 5, verse 11. This is the testimony that must be believed. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. The test of whether a person really is a true believer is, is done in part by what it is they believe. Do they believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do they believe that he is the Son of God? And do they believe that he alone is the remedy for the sin, which is a problem for each and every one of us? And this test of belief is is important. It's indispensable to the message of John as a whole. You can't rip it out and separate it from the others. Famously, at at Harry and Meghan's royal wedding, earlier this year, was it? Michael Curry preached on a section of 1 John. And the way he preached made it sound as though all you need to do is love others. And if you are loving, you become a child of God because God is love. And if you only took the verses that he preached on, you could probably legitimately 
make up that message. If you only took the verses that he preached from. But if you read those verses in the context of 1 John as a whole and realise that those verses about love are intertwined with these verses about belief, you realise that Bishop Michael Curry made a grave error in the way he preached and in the message that he drew from that passage. The message that 1 John is about to give us about love and loving others must be intertwined with this message about belief. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you believe that you need a saviour? And do you believe that the only saviour who can save you is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God? We're going to take a pause at this point and we're going to sing. Uh, We're going to sing as a song that, that praises... So what does John say then to those who might accept their own sinfulness... Ask for forgiveness, realise their need of a saviour, but then continue to live unchanged lives. Continue to live lives just as they were before they met Christ, as it were. Or what does John's letter say to those who are doubting, on the other side of the coin, uh, their own salvation? Because they see their their sin so keenly. They see the extent of their sin. Could they really be forgiven? What does John say uh, to those people? Well, the next strand of tests is the test of living. How do you live? Do you live a life that's marked by sin? Or do you live a life of righteousness? And John is clear. In making the point that everybody has got this issue of sin, he's not giving us free license to ignore the problem. Chapter 2, verse 1, straight after he said... Chapter 1, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Chapter 2, verse 1, I write this so that you will not sin. Acknowledging sin doesn't mean that we can turn a blind eye to sin. Uh, Rather, what he says is, chapter 2, verse 3, we must uh, walk as Jesus did. We, We know that we have come to know Jesus if we obey his commands. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The life of a Christian must be free from sin. It must be marked by uh, righteousness, a turning away from sin. It picks this up again in verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15, where he exhorts us, do not love the world. Why shouldn't you love the world? Because in the world are the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. All these things don't come from the Father, but they come from the world. Turn away from those things. Don't love them. Uh, Turn away from sin. And perhaps he makes his case most severely in chapter 3. Look at verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And that idea is repeated again at the end, chapter 5, verse 18. And so to those people who claim to be Christians who claim to have asked for forgiveness, who claim to have uh, repented of sin and yet live an unchanged life, 
John's message is abundantly clear. It's, it's uncompromising. It's unswerving. It leaves no middle ground for them to stand in. It doesn't give an inch. It says if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, it must be shown in your life. It must be shown in the way you live. It must be shown in the way you turn from sin and seek to live a righteous life. There is no fellowship between God, who is light and purity and holiness and righteousness. There is no fellowship between him and the sin, the dirt, the darkness, the filth in our lives. In fact, the only fellowship that a person who lives in sin has is that fellowship they have with the devil himself, the father of lies, the prince of darkness. John's message is uncompromising. And so perhaps if you're a Christian who has been flirting with sin, ignoring the severity of sin, these verses will come as a challenge, a wake-up call. Are you as genuine in your faith as you really claim to be? Is Christianity what you really expected it to be? These calls are complete and entire. They call for your whole, not just part of you. But what comfort then do these verses, what help, how do these verses support John's aim of giving us assurance? How do these verses support John's aim of bringing joy How do these verses support the doubting Christian whose conscience sears their minds with a recollection of sin? What's John doing writing such uncompromising verses as these if his aim is to try and encourage struggling Christians? What's he doing? How can he possibly align the two? It might help to to clarify how John sees Christianity working. You see, our view of Christianity can not always, but often, become very transactional. We come to Jesus, we offer him our repentance, our lives, our service, whatever you might like to say. We offer him our belief, and in return, he offers us eternal life. It's a very transactional sort of thing. Only this transaction isn't a sort of once done for all. It's kind of a, you you do it once and then, oh, in order to stay in the, to stay in the deal, you've got to live a life of service to Christ. You've got to live a life of righteousness. It's a bit like going to buy a brand new car. So you turn up to the showroom and you put down your deposit. That's like your belief in Christ. And what do you get? You get the car. But you only get to keep the car so long as you keep paying the monthly payments. And it's easy for us to fall into a trap of thinking about Christianity in this way. Very transactional. We offer Christ something, he offers something in return. We offer him our service and our love, he offers us eternal life. But that's not the language that John uses. John uses language that is much more about relationship. So, chapter 1, verse 3, it says... We are proclaiming to you what we have seen and heard, that is about Jesus, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son. We're proclaiming to you Jesus, so you can have this relationship 
this fellowship. Even in these tests that are, that are brought in, chapter 2, verse 3, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. But look at his language. We know we have come to know him. We know we have come to know him. That's not transactional language. We know that we have received forgiveness, for example. We know we have come to know him. That's relational language. Chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Uncompromising test. But look at the language. Whoever claims to live in him. They live in him. The two become one. A Christian united to Christ. We live in him. Even those difficult verses in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God, born of God, born into the family, will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. It's not just the Christian remaining in Christ. Now it's God's seed remaining in us. God dwelling in us. Being born into his family. And it's these truths which cause John to, to have paused at chapter 3 verse 1. It, uh, he just it seems to pause halfway through what he's writing and says, whoa, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That we should be adopted into his family. That we should be made his children. Even the idea of the reward of Christianity, the, the idea of eternal life, for example, is not so much... When, when John talks about eternal life, it's not so much about an ongoing existence... Instead, he's referring to to enjoying an an infinite measure of the one who is life itself. It's partaking infinitely in life itself, God. It's being joined inseparably to the giver of life. So, look at chapter 2, verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father... So he says, look, if it does, you will remain in the Son and the Father. You'll have that relationship. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. So he equates the relationship between the Christian and the Son and the Christian and the Father. He equates that relationship with eternal life itself. And he does it again in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20. um, We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true And we are in him who is true, even in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If you have the son, if you are joined to him, if you know him, if you are brought into fellowship with him, you don't just have him, you have what he is, which is eternal life. And so when you take this view of Christianity, not the transactional view, but this relational view, it makes much more sense then about why we are called to turn from sin. Because to become a Christian is to say, God, I want to be joined to you. God, I need to be joined to you. Becoming a Christian is to be brought into fellowship with the Father through the Son. And if we are seeking to be joined to the Father, how could we possibly also seek to be joined to sin. It's not a case of you're not allowed to be joined to sin. Of course you're not not allowed, but it's, it's a silly way of arguing it. Because what you're saying by becoming a Christian is you're saying, God, I want to be joined to you. 
but sin is over here. And so if you were trying to join yourself to sin, you'd be going in the total opposite direction. So it's, it's an illogical thing to argue, to say, I want to be joined to God, but also to enjoy my own sin. You're going in two opposite directions. You can't do both. You're doing one or the other. And if you're going towards sin, you're going away from God. And if you're going towards God, you're going away from sin. And so that's why John argues in chapter 3, verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And in verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. If you've been born of God, if you're headed in this direction towards him, if you're seeking one day to be made like him because you will see him, then you're not facing sin. You are not continuing in sin. You're not keeping on sinning. And these verses only make sense then if we understand John's words. When he says, no one keeps on sinning, he has to mean there, no one keeps on in continued, unrepentant, willfully habitual sin. No one makes a habit of sinning. No one makes it their practice. No one seeks these things. And so to the Christian who is grieving over their sin, to the Christian whose consciences cut them up, to the Christian whose faith is so often shattered because they see the reality and the severity of their own sin, John's words are a help and a guide and a comfort to you. Because he's saying, if you even so much as see the severity of your own sin, that is a sign that you have been turned to face the God. That is a sign. It is an indication of God's seed working in you. Don't allow that to, to be a license for sin, but allow that to spur you on to repentance, to keep seeking him, to keep walking towards him. Now you might say, well, what if my sin was willful? Was David's sin willful when he sinned with Bathsheba? Was it willful when he had her husband killed in order to cover up his tracks? Was it willful? Yes, it was willful. Was he forgiven? Yes, as he repented, he was forgiven. What if you say, it was my sin has just been so repeated, I can't shake it off, it's over and over again, and maybe God will give me some chances, but he can't keep going on forever, can it? If this sin is repeated over and over again. Did Peter repeat his sin when he denied Jesus? Not once, not twice, but three times in the same night, even after he'd already been warned, that is exactly what he would do. Yes, it was repeated sin. Was he forgiven? Yes, he was forgiven when he repented. What if you say, no, but you don't understand. My sin is more severe than you've ever come across. Was it more severe than Paul's sin, who murdered, put to death, Christians, men, women, children, just for the very fact of them being Christians? Was it more severe than the thief who died on the cross next to Jesus? The thief and probably murderer who so much has reached out to Jesus in repentance and didn't have opportunity to do anything to make recompense. And yet Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. To the one who is cut up over their own sin, allow that grief, allow that seed of God working in you to turn you towards repentance. And the promise of God is that you will find forgiveness if you turn towards him. John's test then of whether you're living out the Christian life 
can be summarized not by making a, a detailed checklist of what's right and wrong, but by asking this simple question, are you repentant? Do you make it your aim to please him in every way? And then just briefly, the final test, the test of love. And really, the premise of this final test is very similar to the previous one. Um, and some commentators would even uh, join these together. Uh, God is love, John says. Chapter 4, verse 8, verse 16. God is love. Just as God is, is holy, just as God is light, and, and so because of who he is, we are called to re- reject sin and turn towards him. So also God is love. And if we're seeking to be joined to God, if we're seeking fellowship with him, we should emulate that characteristic in our lives. The two main sections that deal with this teaching are chapter 4, verse uh, 7 to 21, and chapter 3, verse uh, 11 to 25. Um, And in both sections, John starts with the loving action of Jesus Christ himself. He says in chapter 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's the model. That's the starting point. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. When we considered that verse a few weeks back in uh, October, I think, we realized that that love that Jesus showed was costly. That love was for the benefit of the other, not for the benefit of himself. Uh, that love took the initiative. It didn't wait to be asked. It went out to seek those who were lost. This is the baseline. This is the example. This is the, the initial demonstration. And John says, this is how we know what love is. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We ought to do the same. To live out the same love for those who we've been joined to. And he makes the same argument in, in the section in chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> chapter 4 verse 10 he says this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice this time the emphasis that John's making is upon the initiative that this love takes it makes the first move it seeks to bless others without waiting to be asked uh, dear friends since God so loved us we also ought to love one another and even with this third test of, of uh, John that he puts down, the, the warnings are just as plain as with the previous tests. So, in three, 3 verse 14, John warns, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. If you don't love your brothers and sisters, if you don't love your fellow Christians, you cannot be joined to God the Father. You cannot be joined to Christ. Chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Such is the character of the one whom we are supposed to be in fellowship with. If we don't love our brothers and sisters, how can we possibly claim to love uh, God? And so the test that John leaves us with then is simply, do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you love those beside you in the church? Do you love those across the other side of the world in the church, the same church that you are part of. If you claim to love God, do you love his children? If you claim to love God, do you love his family? Are you in fellowship with them? Are you joined to them? Are you laying down your life 
for them, just as Christ laid down his life for us. It would be difficult, really, to overemphasize the significance of the role that the church plays in the life of a Christian. A Christian who's not joined to the church, a Christian who's not part of the church, a Christian who's not loving the church, really has to start questioning what relationship it is that they have with the Father. Because relationship with the Father is relationship with his people. And so this third test comes as a challenge to all of us, Christian or not, to more fully devote ourselves to our brothers and sisters. And it comes as an encouragement. An encouragement as a reminder of that fact that Jesus taught us that the very least of the actions that you do for one of your brothers and sisters does not go unnoticed. But even the least of the actions that you do for those around you is as though you were doing that action for Christ himself. I encourage you to love one another.